0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Yeah, you're not trying to bring down the current system. You're just going around it and hopefully increasingly making it irrelevant.
2: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Kate Rawls. Kate is a cyclist, writer, environmentalist, academic, and campaigner. For 10 years, she worked half time as a lecturer in outdoor studies at the University of Cumbria, teaching big picture environmental issues, sustainability, environmental education, and a bit of sea kayaking, and half time as a freelance outdoor philosopher, writer, lecturer, and environmental campaigner. In 2006, she cycled from Texas to Alaska following the spine of the Rockies and exploring North American responses to climate change. The trip has since formed the basis of hundreds of slideshows to a wide range of audiences. The book that followed, The Carbon Cycle, Crossing the Great Divide, was shortlisted for the Banff Mountain Festival Adventure Travel Book Award and was a runner-up in the UK People's Book Prize. Kate is passionate about the need to find urgent, effective and suitably radical responses to our multiple environmental challenges, including giving our values and worldviews a thorough overhaul and firmly believes our quality of life can go up rather than down in the process. She's excited about the potential of adventurous journeys as a communication medium, and believes the adventure of sustainability is an adventure we're all on, one way or another. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication, sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration you can find out more at sidetracked.com i'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner the martin moran foundation they're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors you can find information about how you can support them on our instagram bio at the adventure podcast Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Kate Rolls. So let's start in the logical obvious place. Please could you introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever
1: that means to you. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Kate Rawls. I'm I'm laughing because, yeah, who I am and what I do is no longer at all a straightforward question to answer. Um, So I used to be a fairly straightforward university lecturer, first in um, environmental philosophy at Lancaster University, and then, well, oh my goodness, Where do I start? Okay, so environmental philosophy, I think, is really, really important. It raises all these big, big questions about the relationship between people and nature, which, as we all know, is currently pretty dysfunctional, actually, in the West. And rethinking that relationship, I think, is a hugely important task. And so I was excited about that aspect of being an environmental philosopher with an official job title that said, go talk about these important things with, you know, young people that have idealism and energy and might get out there and do something. However... It transpires that doing this through a university system is not a way of creating thoughtful, intelligent activists. It's a way of having the life strained out of you and trying to have these conversations indoors um, with no nature present at all that you're trying to discuss. So. The only other species would be our own gut flora and fauna. So to cut a long story short, eventually I decided, no, this just isn't, this just isn't right. And I went sideways, I went freelance for a while, and then I went sideways into outdoor studies to try to figure out how to have these conversations outdoors so that the nature that we were trying to recast our relationship with would actually be present. So I taught in outdoor studies at the University of Cumbria, half-time for 10 years and develop my kind of other forms of environmental activism in the other half time. But then (laughs) I decided that, right, I need to get back on the road to do another big bike ride, which is another kind of aspect of what I love to do, but do that in a way that would help raise awareness and inspire action on, on some big environmental issues. And I quit to do a huge ride in South America exploring why biodiversity loss is as important as climate change. And so now, to try to finish answering your very straightforward, apparently, question. um, Yeah, I'm freelance. I consider myself to be a kind of environmentalist, writer, activist sort of person. So very hard to put a neat label on it. Um, Very poor way of earning an income, um, but much more aligned to my core values and passions and and what I want to do.
2: Brilliant. And where did that begin for you? What's the access point? Is it cycling? Is it environmentalism? Is it philosophy? Where does this begin?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, in a weird way, I think it began in a gap year job, which I had at a riding school. I was a passionate horsey kid, and I'd wanted nothing more than to work with horses for the rest of my life. And so I I was at school in Aberdeen, and I was about to go to Aberdeen University. And in the gap, I worked at a riding school, and I commuted there by bike. And gradually over the years, I sort of realized, well, actually, you know, a bike is a kind of a magician, like a journey that would be really mundane in a car or a bus becomes this mini adventure. And I was chronically unfit. I mean, I, I smoked really heavily in my, in my young teens. What an idiot. But anyway, I did. <laughs> and so I was really, really unfit. But I realized, yeah, you've got this kind of mini adventure type feel when you're on your bike. And even if you are totally unathletic and really out of shape. You can cycle 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles without any training and without too much pain. And so over the years, gradually the bike thing displaced the horse thing. And bikes are much less complicated than horses for a start. Um, And I started to use the bike not just to commute, but to go on journeys. And gradually those journeys became longer and longer. And I was also, I've always really, really been in love with mountains. I mean, I'm just really drawn to mountains. Um, And again, the bike gave me a way of accessing that, which... Was just fantastic. And then at about the same time I started to learn about environmental issues and just over the years have become just appalled really about the things I didn't know and the things that my lifestyle was inadvertently colluding with and starting with the way the animals were are treated and then going from there into wider environmental issues and the impacts that normal people in a western industrialized society Have completely without realising often, and definitely not on purpose. So those two things started to kind of seamlessly come together with the idea that, I don't know, maybe there's a way of indulging my passion of riding my bike in mountains by then, hot sunny ones preferably, having grown up in Aberdeenshire. Um, Is there a way of combining that with raising awareness and inspiring action on big environmental issues, which I was learning more and more about, and more and more about their urgency. And so gradually the idea of Adventure Plus uh, evolved. And Adventure Plus is the idea of using adventurous journeys or somewhat adventurous journeys, it's all relatively. Anyway, adventurous journeys to raise awareness and inspire action on our most urgent environmental issues. The first of those was the carbon cycle, which was Texas to Alaska, the spine of the Rockies, exploring climate change at the height of the Bush administration. So that was really, really fascinating time to be on a bike chatting to people about climate change.
2: Yeah, and as is often the case with these podcasts, I sense we could do five or six and cover you know, <laughs> the various adventures and, you know, little missions that you have, but what was that like? And, you know, you've given us the 10-second version, but what did you do and what was it like as mm. an experience?
1: Uh, I mean, Matt, it was just fabulous in so many ways. Like, as I say, I, I love riding my bike in mountains. I particularly like hot, sunny ones. Um, and it's been a revelation to me growing up in, in the north of Scotland that there are hot, sunny mountains. So that's just always been a joy for a very long time. And um, I was on a road bike and started in Texas, just meandering my way up, sort of following the spine of the, of the Rockies on roads and just sort of exploring what climate change looked like in the States at that point, this is 2006. And the kind of logic of it was that um, North America the United States and Canada were at that point and still are one of the most oil addicted, oil intensive, oil ravenous countries on earth. So very much kind of implicated in the creation of climate change as an issue. People's ordinary lifestyles in the States are very high impact. And of course, industry in the States is very oil hungry as well. <clears throat> and on the road, you really witness these kind of vast vehicles and gas guzzling things. So it was all very kind of visual, the climate change aspect of things. But then sort of talking to ordinary people and um, and also meeting some activists, you get this completely different picture, about complete spectrum of people that don't actually know it was happening to people that are really committed and really trying to change. And I think that's often the case where you've got the worst of a problem, you've also often got the best of the solution. So some of the North American activists are the, are the most passionate and committed and brilliant of anywhere in the world. So it was a fabulous mixture of incredibly diverse landscapes, sort of starting very deserty and ending up with glaciers running down to the ocean via Rocky Mountains. Um, some fascinating wildlife encounters. It was the first time I'd ever camped. In, a, in habitats that had creatures that might eat you. And that really changes your understanding of your relationship with nature. Not in an altogether bad way, interestingly. Like, it's quite humbling and quite positive, I think, to be put in your ecological place sometimes. I mean, I didn't get eaten by a bear, but um, it was an interesting question to have in mind. Um, yeah. so this fabulous diversity of landscapes and animals and, and, and activists as well as just the basic joy of being on the road. That was three months, that trip. And life becomes very, very simple, as you know. You just eat, sleep, ride your bike, eat, sleep, ride your bike. I mean, it's it's great. You have everything you need with you, and, and there you are. And you're very open to the world is one of the things I love most about cycle touring. People associate with you differently. They interact with you differently when you rock up on a loaded touring bike. And perhaps especially alone, and perhaps especially as a woman on your own, I've always found it brings out the absolute best in people when you turn up on this massive loaded bicycle, and they're like, "What the heck are you doing? And can't you afford a car?" <laughs> and then the next question is always, "You know, would you like to come home and have some food? And how are you? And do you need anything?" And yeah. So I, so I, so I loved it in so many ways. Um, and then I came back, turned the whole thing into a slideshow. And the idea was to use the adventure story as a hook and then talk about climate change to a different set of audiences who might not rock up to a straight climate change talk. And that that was also a a learning experience. I learned a lot about giving talks and and not using too many graphs. (laughs) (laughs) And that,
2: yeah, because that's something I definitely wanted to touch on today. And, you know, let's just go there sooner rather than later is It's that I love the, you know, almost the phrasing as well as the concept of adventure plus is actually probably the best way I've ever phrased it. You know, adventure with purpose or because I think increasingly I, we, the royal we struggle to justify particularly overseas journeys in any way, shape or form, whether they are a journey of self, um, which often adventures are, or whether there is an intention to bring something back um, or a small group of people, a large group of people, humanity. How have you found that people have reacted to you almost slotting the climate and environmental message and stories into the adventure stories? And are they listening?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I'm fascinated to step back a little by the kind of paradox around the whole world of adventure. So on the one, on the one hand, I think it can be fantastically positive in so many ways. Um, I use it as a communication medium, and, and I've found that that works. I think, I think it's working, and I, and I can say more about that later. Um, but, I mean, the transition we need to make from where we are now, especially in industrialized Western countries, and where we need to get to if we're to achieve anything like real sustainability. I mean, our environmental impacts, cumulatively, are mind-bogglingly, self-destructively terrifying, in fact. And we all carry on as if everything's normal. And so the transition is is vast and it's structural and it's systemic, and we can no longer tweak our way out of the Anthropocene, the kind of combination of all of our environmental impacts. And that can be a most kind of daunting, really overwhelming sort of thought. But if you think of that as an adventure, then I think that changes the whole tone around sustainability and environmental commitment and it brings out a sort of up for it. Yes, we can do this sort of sort of vibe to it. So I'm fascinated by the importance of adventure as a communication medium, but also as a metaphor for those very, very big, very challenging um, transitions that we need to make. And it's a really fruitful metaphor because you know, there is a certain element of risk involved. We don't quite know how we're going to get there. We don't really know what our ultimate destination is. And then you can push the metaphor even further. You have to work with other people. You can't do it solo. You have unexpected allies turning up and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really helpful um, as a metaphor for that transition and, and as a mindset. But on the other hand, <laughs> as well as these positives, you have adventure as this extraordinarily problematic kind of set of entitlements and assumptions that we are allowed to go out there, entitled to go out there and conquer the world with a high environmental footprint. And all of that is legitimized because of the the value of the adventure that, that we're going on. And while, of course, it does mean that you're connected with nature often in a different way, traditionally, there's been a sort of a conquering element to that, which is definitely not the the kind of philosophy of our relationship with nature that we need if we're going to move forward in this way. So I just, and, and also, of course, as, as well as the flying that's often part of an adventure or the, the impacts of the travel, there's a lot of consumerism and consumerism is perhaps one of the biggest kind of challenges that we face. There's a lot of shiny kit and new stuff and all the companies are, are, have to sell you stuff in order to grow, in order to survive. So I, I just love this kind of paradoxical wonderful dilemma that is the adventure world fantastically positive in so many ways including modeling a very very different meaning for what quality of life and a good life looks like that is nothing at all to do with consumerism everything to do with having quality experiences and connection with places and people and landscapes and nature and on the other hand this kind of awful corrupted aspect of adventure that's very consumerist and very materialistic and experiences are just sold alongside everything else so that was kind of a long answer to the question I've now forgotten <coughs> where were we going with this what was the question
2: I don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs> how did I oh I know it was how did I get into adventure plus and how has it been received I think that was where we started
2: yeah I mean it doesn't matter where we started I am really <laughs> what comes next but then um, no, I think this is almost more than ever before in this podcast. I've got this real feeling of like sensei and students because what you're speaking about and what you have, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're Dr. Kate Rawls and what you have here is, you know, an armchair um, philosopher sat mm-hmm. opposite you who's fascinated by these concepts and and ideas. And I spend a lot of my time thinking about this stuff and you probably have much better answers than me because... You know, that, the way you phrased it, that paradox of adventure, I mean, that's something we all deal with
1: yeah,
2: all of the time. I've just come back from Iceland. On a three-week trip, it was mind-blowing, genuinely life-changing, which is a real cliche. It was, and in ways that I won't bore you with. But I flew there, and I flew back, and so did six other people. And I feel really guilty about that, and I feel like, I have to have my answers ready for when people might say, well, hang on, you're championing journeys close to home, you know, uh, slowing things down, burning less, using less. How dare you? I mean, I fly all the time. And I don't plan to stop. And I'm very happy for you to get grumpy with me. I'm very happy for you to tell me. <laughs> to with me but how do we justify it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to get grumpy with you, I promise. But um, well, only a little bit grumpy. I mean, for me, this has been a journey in itself. So, the carbon cycle I flew, and I thought to myself at the time, yeah, I'm going for three months. I'm going to ride my bike exclusively while I'm there. I'm going to come back and turn it into a piece of communication about climate change. That's okay. And then, honestly, it took I don't know how many slideshow talks and some kind of slightly critical feedback and raised eyebrows from audiences. And about two years before it dawned on me, hang on a minute, I'm part of the problem here. This is this mindset, my flight's okay, your flight's the problem. That's exactly the problem, right? So since the carbon cycle, I've put myself on a kind of flying ration, self-imposed, where I decided I can't commit giving up flying just yet. I just I just can't. There's so many places that I can't get to in any other way that I'd, I'd hate to think I'm going to die before I see them. So, okay, I'm not going to quit flying, but I'm going to try and cut back on it. And so I have put myself on a only one flight every three years um, ration, and I've stuck to that since 2006. Um, and it's actually been really, really positive in a number of ways. Number one, when you're talking about it, I think the idea of putting yourself on a ration makes more sense to many people than banning themselves from flying, because I think most of us aren't quite there yet. But everybody can imagine a ration and it can be different for different people, right? So um, people have given me critical feedback to say, well, it should be once every five years. And other people have said, well, I think I'm going to go for once every two years. But at least we're trying to think honestly about how we cut back and what's a fair amount of carbon we can all afford to burn. And the other thing I've found is that when I do fly, I really, really frigging appreciate it. Like I make the most of it. Um, I'm, I'm going to go to Banff Mountain Festival in October and I will fly to that. And actually the last time I flew was four years ago also to Banff Mountain Festival. So, you know, so there you go. But I really, really make the most of it and I absolutely you know, fully 100% engaged with whatever I'm doing when I get there. And in the gaps, I've been doing a heck of a lot more sea kayaking in Scotland and things I can access locally, taking ferries to places, trains and so on. And that's been massively positive as well. So for me, it's not, it's not as much about, well, it is a bit about crunching the numbers. We have to crunch the numbers, right? There's only so much more carbon we can put into the atmosphere and, and have the earth remain habitable. Divide that by the number of people on earth and it gives you a budget, right? So it is a bit about crunching the numbers and trying to bring our our footprint within those safe parameters. But even more than that, for me, I think it's about opening up this conversation and all of us, having the strength to look honestly at our own lifestyles and the society that we're part of and try to think about the structural changes that need to happen so that we can all live more lightly on the earth and have that easier than living heavily on the earth. So it's the conversation that, that is really important, I think, the honest, brave conversation. And again, that takes us back to adventure because my goodness, we need to have that, that conversation in that world. And so, yeah, I think there are flights which of course can be justified in terms of world-changing experiences, but let's put those into a wider context and think about our lives in general and how we can slim down the negative impacts and increase the positive ones, which is the other side, isn't it? There's going to be so many positive influences from your Icelandic experience. Were you skiing, incidentally?
2: Yeah, ski touring, pulling and travelling across Vatniokal. Um, which is the largest glacier? Uh, sorry, ice cap in Western Europe. Oh. But yeah, and it was there was a real purpose to that. It wasn't environmental, but there was a you know I'm a this is such a cliche and try to think of I'm a I'm a storyteller. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a photographer. I do podcast. You know, and I am very happy to admit or put myself out there and say I self indulgently justify my travels because of the impact that the stories have on other people. And it's so easy for me because I very, very rarely fly for my own, I can't say for my own fun because I love what I do, but for personal travel, I mean, somebody said to me on a podcast recently, what's your favorite adventure you've ever done for yourself? And I was like, well, I don't don't really understand the question. And it's because I've spent 15 years traveling under the banner of film and photography Uh, apart from in the UK where I go on little missions all the time, sea kayaking around Suffolk or traveling up to Scotland and playing around on Sky. But I do think I don't, you know, obviously know you very well and I don't know your background in detail, but there is that, again, we open ourselves up to criticism because we've both done lots of amazing things and it's very easy for us to now turn around and say, well, I don't think we should do X, Y, and Z. It's all right for us because we've done it. Is it right for other people to just stop flying, traveling? And what's their alternative? Is it to just slow down and do one every three years and do journeys close to home?
1: That's one alternative. And, and I'm, the way I've experienced it, it hasn't been hardship. I mean, honestly, well, you know, there's sea kiking in Scotland off the West Coast. It's the best sea kiking in the world, as far as I'm aware. I mean, it's just fantastic. It's wonderful, wonderful. So I'm very, very happy to do lots more of that. Um, And I live in Cumbria, so I've got, you know, the Lake District Hills just on my doorstep. Um, I'm trying to do more off-road cycling, which actually I'm very, very unskilled at, despite my last trip being in the Andes. Um, So that's a new adventure. But again, I can do that out the back door. So um, that's fantastic. And my last big trip in South America, um, I didn't fly. I crossed the Atlantic on a cargo ship. And, oh, my word, that was amazing. I mean, that was an adventure in its own right. And we could spend another podcast talking just about cargo ship travel because it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I came back by cargo ship too. So there are, other, I mean, that's fairly extreme in terms of time and money, but there are other ways of, of travelling. I'm hoping to get to Corfu Literary Festival later in the year. And if that comes off, then I'll definitely go overland um, by train and by ferry, and it'll take 48 hours instead of six hours or whatever. But my word, that'll be a, a wonderful experience.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back to the cargo ship in one
1: second.
2: You <laughs> <laughs> have to talk. No, about
1: that might. Too.
2: <laughs> I think, I mean, Sophie Roberts, you know, the author, and I mean, she's just an amazing person, journalist. She was saying it's oh, The, lo-
1: the Lost Pianos. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed um, her at Kendall Mountain Festival a couple of years ago. She's incredible. What a writer!
2: Yeah, and what a thinker and brain. I, I you know, we're friends, and I'm very proud to call her a friend now. But I'm very intimidated by her brain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a very fun, lovely way. I think it's like going. It's like going to the gym, um, hanging out. with you know? a <laughs>
1: that's a great analogy. Yeah.
2: Um, but she was saying it's all about slowing down and, and travel with purpose. Well she didn't phrase it like this, but this is what I took from it. Travel with purpose and that purpose doesn't have to be for anyone else. It can be purpose for you. You know, it's there's I'm not saying I don't want to kind of poo-poo going to Marbella and sitting on the sun lounge for six days. Some people need to do that. Life is hectic and hard and that's what our society and culture does. But actually, you know, saving up the holiday from work, taking the three weeks, going somewhere, slowing things down, engaging with the culture and a landscape will do so much more for somebody than sitting on a sun lounger for six days. Um, and I guess, I don't know your, what your views on this are, but it's how do we get our society and culture to a point where that's normalized um, and where overland travel and getting there is as exciting as being there? Mm.
1: And there's a lot of things that have to change around people for that to happen. I mean, I think, I think our, our work-life balance, and it's such a cliche, isn't it? But I think for many people, the work-life balance is seriously askew. And we have an odd kind of ethics in relation to what we expect from people and what we expect life to be. And if you're, you know, if you're working really, really hard in an indoor stressful environment um, and you only have two or three weeks holiday a year, then, yeah, of course, you're going to want to go somewhere. and You just want to go there and you're just going to want to stop, aren't you? Although, in my experience, um, just stopping is not that easy, is it? If you're, if you're up against the wire and then, OK, now well, I'm on holiday, now I have to lie on this beach and keep really still. Yeah, it doesn't quite work, does it? So for all sorts of reasons, I think slowing things down and um, making it possible for people to have more time and to, and to need to earn less money and... Yeah, it's all to do with values, isn't it? In the end, and why are, we, why are we spending our lives working our butts off in order to earn money to buy stuff we don't need? And obviously not everybody's in that position. Many people are earning money in order to pay bills that they have to pay. But beyond that, there's a whole sort of culture of consumerism and crazy expectations about what a good life looks like that fuel the environmental catastrophe as well as our own stress.
2: Yeah. But I mean, I'm happy for you. To, you know, I really am open to you sort of criticizing me here and saying, no, you've got it wrong and etc. etc. But I've really, I've done some soul searching over the past few years because I do want to make loads of money. And I've been trying to work out where, well, I, it didn't take very long, but I've been trying to work out where that comes from. Now, partly I want to do good things with it. And by good things, I mean to help others, help the planet, etc. But it's also because... I can't buy the house that I want to live in. And by that, I don't mean seven bedrooms. I mean enough land to grow enough food to eat. I'm an avid gardener. And to not be able to hear road noise.
1: Yeah.
2: And to do that, I need 700 grand. Like, that, you know, that's the thing is it's like we don't want, we want more time off. We don't want to earn much money. But realistically, even for those of us that aren't chasing the Porsches and the Rolexes, Life isn't that simple, is it?
1: No, no, of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. And, yeah, I mean, I'm now feeling extremely uncomfortable because I'm in the very, very fortunate position of being about to embark on exactly what you've just described is what you most want to do, but without having to spend £700,000 because actually I don't I don't have that kind of money. But um, I'm part of a small group of people that were lucky enough to be able to buy some land jointly that had outline planning permission for five eco houses so um, yeah that that's all sort of happening in a place where you can't hear road noise on the edge of the river sprint just outside kendal <laughs> so now you're going to hate me forever but yeah that is the dream come true and, and it and it wasn't anywhere in, 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 approaching 700,000 pounds but for most people that is that is way beyond reach i i totally agree but, um, but the part of the reason for that is the way we value land culturally and kind of private ownership and, you know, all of that stuff that we could so totally get into. Um, for me, so many things come back to the point that a lot's put on us as individuals. Like as individuals, we're supposed to reduce our carbon footprint. We're supposed to reduce our wider ecological footprint. We're supposed to, you know, earn enough money to do what we want to do, but without causing too much impact, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just about individuals, is it? It's also about the society that we're embedded in. And there are many, many aspects of that society that are just dysfunctional and unhelpful in terms of people and planet. So I think the big challenge is, is well, one of the big challenges is shifting the narrative away from individual responsibility for environmental disaster to the kinds of structural changes that we need to make so that people's lives are more positive and the planet can continue to flourish i mean let's let's face it we kind of need the planet it's not like environmental agenda is some kind of luxury that we can kind of tack on after we've paid the bills like if the planet becomes uninhabitable then we're all in deep trouble right
2: but i even find you know i i i used to get really grumpy about this stuff and i used to really judge people and I, again i i was wrong you know i used to think why don't you care why aren't you listening mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in that world of you know, recycling and you know wearing hemp trousers. That wasn't how I grew up. It was
1: Just aven- stereotype now. come on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was adventure and nature and travel, overseas travel, mm. uh, my eyes to this way of living, and then the impact and the issues. And I, I, I recognize that I've had a very privileged kind of entry into that world. But that's not, not everyone can have that. And what, what I think where I do still get frustrated, so I, I tend not to judge, I don't judge people at all who haven't had that exposure, don't understand, haven't seen it. That's, that's something we have to work to change, those of us who do understand those issues. But what scares me is people who do know mm-hmm. but still don't want to change anything or don't act to change anything. And... I don't, I don't have an answer for this. I'm troubled by it. Maybe you can help me. But why aren't people standing up and engaging when they do know, you know the issues? They understand what the problems are.
1: I think, well, two things there. One, I think there's often a failure of, of imagination, and that comes back to your point about storytelling. Like, we urgently need different stories, don't we, about what it means to lead a really good life, about what our relationship with nature is. I mean... Gosh, the story that modern Western industrialized societies tells us about nature is Well, there's a number of them, but none of them are great, right? (laughs) One is that this is kind of like a massive Walmart supermarket full of stuff that we can go out and get. We can extract resources endlessly from nature and it's limitless and it'll never run out, but it's basically there for us. Whether we're talking actual commodities or ecosystem services, it's all about us. And another is that it's this kind of luxury kind of frivolous nice to have but not necessary place that you can go and hike in or have picnics in and there are very few stories embedded in in western cultures about how vital nature is on so many levels sort of psychologically and emotionally as well as literally like it is our life support system how long do we think we'd survive without pollinators you know it's a few years at best um, so, so we need new stories about our relationship with nature we need to see ourselves as part of ecological communities as well as human social ones and utterly dependent on those ecological communities in a way that's, that's celebratory it isn't a, a burden to be part of an ecosystem right? it's a joy um, so we need, we need very different stories about nature its vitalness to us and our relationship um, in a positive way to it and we need different stories about what the good life looks like which are i think have to be less consumption oriented even if a certain amount of money is okay i admit a good thing a necessary thing and then there's another set of questions and issues around vested interests and power isn't there like yes some of the people that know most about the about the challenge of climate and ecological emergencies also have the most to gain from the status quo and from the status quo continuing so if you look at the misinformation that's come out from the oil industry, for example, who've known for longer than any of us what's going on in terms of climate change, and very, very deliberately tried to disrupt that message and send out false information. I mean, it's appalling, but it's just, just reality, isn't it, that people with a lot of vested interests are going to fight to retain the status quo. So some of this stuff is is kind of nice, fluffy. Let's change the narrative. Let's tell different stories. Some of it's a is a fight. It's a battle. It's a power struggle, and there's no getting out of that. I think.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm doing a terrible job today of not talking much, um, given the speech I gave you at the start. But I'm
1: <laughs> please talk more.
2: No, I I this I, I feel really passionately about this stuff, and I don't get to talk about it in this way too often. But I think a lot of it comes down to purpose. I think. You know, again, brief, brief anecdote, I, I was a very purposeless person. <laughs> Adventure was an access point for me to find a little bit of purpose and to be a brave white man, which is what I definitely wanted to be when I was in my early 20s. Um, and readdressing all of that in my late 20s and early 30s, actually the thing that has given me most purpose outside of being a father, which is a whole different story, is helping to change the future, for want of a better phrase. I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by books called The Good Ancestor and How to Change the Future, and I have found so much power in those books. And, you know, there's this amazing book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger, and he talks about how people in uh, interviewed about 10 years ago people who were survivors of the Blitz, and they say they miss it because they miss running out of their houses To go and help whoever's been hit or hurt. And it's an awful thing to have to think about and talk about. But I would argue we're kind of a purposeless society. We have nothing to fight for, nothing to stand for, and nothing to strive for. And actually, this fight, for want of a better phrase, is the ultimate purpose and passion. And it gets me out of bed every morning and it sends me to bed too late at night because I'm always thinking, oh, who else can we interview? What else can we talk about? What films can we fund ourselves to try and raise awareness, do our bit? And, you know, I'm one little tiny cog in this massive, you know, 10-mile-wide machine. Um, that's where I find my purpose. And I just, my question is, I guess, and I am genuinely hoping you have a better answer to this than me, how do we help people realise, perhaps a little bit self-indulgently, that... This fight and the purpose that you get by joining it is, you know, it can be a, a life's calling in a sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's one answer to that, is there? Um, and I, I struggle with that all the time as well. Like, I think when I wrote The Carbon Cycle, it was partly motivated by this desire to rush around screaming with a black heart. Like, wake up, wake up. Can't you see how urgent and important this really is? And I guess over the years, I've realized that that doesn't quite work and um, and that you have to find lots of different entry points for different people and that all, all you can do is 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 do your best motivated by what you're passionate about. To, you asked earlier about what how the Adventure Plus stuff has landed. And one of the bits of feedback I always get is that people like the fact that I'm passionate. And I have this thing about... How we have to tackle sustainability in a way that makes us feel most alive, and that's one of the reasons that I left the university system in the end because I just couldn't cope with the admin and the bureaucracy and the spreadsheets, and it was sucking the life out of me, and I wasn't doing a good job as a result. So finding a way that lights you up will then help connect with other people. I think that's part of it, and then finding a way in to where people are. I mean, that's such an obvious thing to say, isn't it? But Different people care about different things. Most people are motivated by the future of their kids if they have them. I mean, practically everybody is. Um, although you probably have experienced this too. I mean, parents can become so overwhelmingly busy that bizarrely they have to shut out all the kind of bigger problems in order to cope with the small immediate ones, which is one of the paradoxes of... I mean, I'm not a parenthood, but I... I'm not a parenthood. I'm not a parent, but I observe that in parents around me, this sort of paradox of parenthood we have, yeah. to have the big problems to deal with
2: the immediate ones yeah I don't want to air my dirty laundry on the podcast but and that my wife would not Why? mind talking about this but no we <laughs>
1: had a, we had a,
2: it wasn't quite a row but it was definitely a heated conversation not that long ago because basically the, the essence of it was I do, it's not that I care more about this stuff than I do about my kids I absolutely don't but I really care about it. And I was saying to her, you know, you don't seem to care. And she was like, I do care, but I don't have capacity to do anything about it. And I, that really hit me. And I thought, Oh, stupid idiot. Like how, how has that not occurred to you that actually we've got a five month old baby and a two year old. And right now her priority is raising them to be happy, healthy, functioning people. Um, And I'm saying to her, well, there's no future for those happy, healthy, functioning people if we don't deal with all these problems. And she's like, no, that's too much for me to deal with. I'm checking out. And it really was a wake up. I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, you've got enough on your plate. But also it is paradoxical because one of the biggest things you can do for those kids is, you know, stop eating meat, stop flying, look after the planet, vote properly, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know what to do
1: about that. But that comes back to the earlier point we were making about system change, doesn't it? Like it shouldn't be down to your wife to to sort the environmental and ecological crisis or any single one of us, especially those of us who are busy, right? With other things. It's It's not just our responsibility. I mean, George Monbiot has that great great expression, doesn't he, what is it? Consumerist microbolics that we're all told that we must give up plastic straws and that will save the world. And he argues that really really eating less meat and flying less are the two big things. Um, And beyond that, um, actually what we do as individuals may not be as important as it's sometimes made out, but advocating and lobbying and trying to change the system around us. So for example, it ought to be way cheaper to get a train than a plane but typically it's the other way around. But it ought to be cheaper to get the train than to drive, um, typically the other way around. All of these things need to be shifted so that us ordinary people trying to live our lives, by default, when we lead the cheaper lives, we lead the better lives. And it's easy to get public transport and it's easy to buy low impact food and so on. So there's that kind of point. And then I think we get into a conversation about levers for change and where where is it strategic and most effective to take your passion and the thing that lights you up and your kind of intersection with these issues, where can you then take that to have the most impact? Is it the farming and food industry? Is it the transport sector? If you're working in adventure, then there's obvious kind of links with the transport sector, isn't it? Is it the energy sector? Is it politicians? Is it, you know, there's, is it your local organization or your school or your hospital or your business there are lots of different entries into this sort of higher level systemic change type um, type engagement with the issue which is vital but again none of us can do all of it so where can we be most effective is a really interesting question
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Yeah, and I'm fa- I'm fascinated by this concept of I've actually never heard of the you know the course, the um the role of this kind of like environmental philosophy. An outdoor philosophy and adventure philosophy in that sense. How would you define that? And and it's two questions in one, but how were the students engaging with that and what did it do to them?
1: So for me, it's fundamentally about looking critically. Um, well, philosophy in general is fundamentally about looking critically at the assumptions that our, our culture makes about all sorts of things. Environmental philosophy looks critically at the assumptions we make about the relationship between humans and their environments, people in nature, however you want to phrase it. And even talking about human and nature is to make certain assumptions, isn't it? Like that they're separate things as humans over here and there's nature over there. And that arguably is one of the problems, right? Actually, we are in nature. We're part of nature. It's not out there to be discovered. It's what we're immersed in all the time. Um, but anyway, so it's about looking critically at, at, at these assumptions and about the kinds of relationships we have and how we think about nature and how that then influences our actions. And as I was saying earlier, I think it's absolutely and utterly vital that we have these sorts of conversations as a a culture. We we are appallingly prone to commodifying nature and and to instrumentalizing it, to seeing, seeing it as stuff that's out there for us rather than a living community of beings who are every bit as entitled to be here as we are and with whom we have all of these different and and absolutely vital relationships. So I think having these conversations is absolutely vital. Whether having them in a university context, as we were saying earlier, is, is the best way to have them, um, is a matter of debate. But at least it's a start. I mean, the problem with working in the university context is that you're not really mandated to turn out activists. You're you're really supposed to be having a, an intellectual conversation at the end, not an intellectual conversation that then leads in to trying to do something positive for the environment and for the for nature that you've just been discussing. It, it's, it's very abstract and very kind of detached from activism in, in the widest sense.
2: Yeah. And I was reading um, this morning some of the stuff you've... Um, I think it was an interview you'd done. And I can't remember the guy that was referenced, and I'll butcher it, so maybe you could explain it, but this idea of the three R's, this reform, renaissance, or revolution. Mm. And that concept and how you, or could you explain it to me, and then how you see it being part of the solution or part of the problem?
1: I think it may have been Colin Tudge who came up with the three R's initially. Um, and uh, I said, while well, since I read it, but as I remember, uh, he was saying that, uh, apologies to Colin if I in turn butcher it, he he was saying that, yeah, reform is what we typically are invited to become engaged with. Like, let's tweak the system a bit. Let's let's recycle our plastic and let's make sure that we yeah don't use plastic straws and let's cut down on our flying a bit and let's oh yeah, eat a bit less meat and so on, and so on. All, all important things. But we're we're not really trying to fundamentally change anything. We're trying to make tweaks to the within the existing system revolution is sort of like the opposite. It's like, right, this current system is bust and broken and it's dysfunctional. Let's overthrow it and put something completely new in its place. Um, And I have a lot of sympathy for that, actually, because I think the current system is bust and broken. But as we know from history, uh, revolution can be very, very messy, and we don't quite know what we're going to put in its place. And Yeah, so um, Colin, amongst others, has some kind of question marks about revolution as a strategy. And so what excites him is this notion of renaissance where you do more than reform, but you're not calling for out-and-out revolt. But what you do is you go around the existing system and you just do something different, uh, which is a bit like the sort of eco-community sort of concept. We're still somewhat involved in, in modern society. We still go to Sainsbury's, um, but we are increasingly trying to grow our own stuff and live by different values and be less consumerist and be immersed in nature without actually having to work at it. Um, so you're not, yeah, you're not trying to bring down the current system, you're just going around it and hopefully increasingly making it ir- irrelevant. And there are lots and lots of other uh, examples of of people who are doing that sort of uh, renaissance, go round rather than rather than fight. And... Th-
2: Has that, I mean, obviously you were doing this for a long time before you'll have come across that, but has that shift in language changed the way you look at things?
1: Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think not fully, um, and I'm not sure how much that's a failure on my part or whether Renaissance isn't quite enough. I mean, I do find myself kind of, what's the word, sort of not flip-flopping exactly, but flicking from a, a, a revolution type mindset to a renaissance type one. Because actually, if you look at the way the economic system is currently structured, it is very hard just to go around it and do something different. And it is so damaging. I mean, this, the recent trip I did was South America and um, that's another whole long story, but I built a bike out of bamboo and I cycled from one end to the other, mostly following the spine of the Andes and the focus, the Adventure Plus focus was biodiversity loss and why it's as important as climate change. And some of the things I witnessed have definitely changed the way I see the world, including the way I understand um, very resource hungry capitalist economics a little bit better. And again, it's an area where much work is needed in terms of my own understanding. But oh, my goodness. So where to start? I mean, I met some anti-gold mining activists and they were telling me about the impact of gold mining in a very high, watery agricultural area of Colombia. And the impacts are just insane on the water system on the community, which was mostly farming-based, which wouldn't be able to carry on farming because of the pollution in the soil and the water, um, on the local communities, on the ecosystem, on the biodiversity. I mean, insane levels of impacts. And this little group of young people had formed an organization called Kosahuka who were campaigning against the gold mine, um, which was being proposed by Gold Ashanti, one of the biggest gold mining corporations in the world. And they held a public referendum asking people whether they wanted the gold mine to come. And they did a big, big information and educational campaign in advance. And they won the referendum, um, but two people were murdered in the process. Now, it was never proven who did that. Um, but there were some mighty obvious suspicions about who might have done it. And I then went from there to reading about the work that Global Witnesses has done, looking at environmental defenders. You're probably familiar with it people across the world who are standing up for their land, for their community, for their ecosystems and habitats, often against these big extractivist companies and often at literal um, cost to their lives. I think the the latest figures were 287 murdered last year um, around the world. I mean, significant, significant numbers. It's about one every, every fortnight in that kind of region. And we, don't, and we don't hear about this, right? Um, and then I, I went from there to see oil drilling in the Amazon, in the Yasuni National Park, one of the most biodiverse places on earth and a huge carbon sink and home to many indigenous people and more, more plants and animals than anywhere else on earth being destroyed for oil to feed our economy. I also saw a lead mine in the middle of a city in Peru, And when I say in the middle, I mean in the middle. I kind of went up to the edge and looked into this chasm of of a hole, like it was a mile wide, and I don't know how deep, and people were mining for lead in the bottom. And there were houses around the edge of it. And then the city backed out from the edge of this chasm. There is no safe level of lead in a young person's bloodstream. So a lot of the young people in this city had brain development problems. And people knew about this, and it was justified in terms of the necessary income it was bringing into the Caribbean economy. So, oh my goodness, if that doesn't leave you thinking, shit, our economic system is insane and life-destroying, literally, and yet so normalized. So, so we have to challenge that. We have to challenge it. Otherwise, and that was the conclusion I came back with, that unless we radically alter the way we as humans meet our needs through our economic system and move away from this hugely resource-dependent, resource-ravenous extractivist model. There's no hope of tackling climate change or the ecological emergency or these human rights abuses that are happening all over the world or creating quality of life that's equitable for the however many billions of us that we now are across the world in a way that's equitable and also sustainable so as you can tell <laughs> there's still a, a large part of me that's grappling with the revolution the sort of strand of this argument and a bit at a loss as to how I as an individual or me in my community just divert around capitalism completely because it's so powerful and so damaging or, or versions of it are that I think there's no there's no way forward apart from to tackle that head on
2: and I don't want to assume, but you seem—I mean, you obviously seem motivated, like, Im- immensely motivated. Mm-hmm. But are you positive? Are you an optimist? I, th- I don't sense any pessimism here.
1: Um, it depen- it Well, it partly depends what day it is and how early in the morning. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm very energized. It goes back to what you were saying. Earlier, it, it's, I, have, I, have no, I have no lack of purpose. I, there's no doubt in my mind that this is the most important struggle that any of us can engage with, to keep the planet habitable. For all its inhabitants, human and other than human, what could be a more worthwhile struggle? If you, if you think about that rationally, if you think about what we're up against rationally and intellectually, it's definitely possible to become extremely pessimistic and many people are now talking about, yeah, deep, deep adaptation and and the idea that the only thing we can be really thinking about sensibly now is is how to adapt and how to cope with the catastrophes that are coming. Um I I can't function in that space. I need to still feel that it's it's got to be worth trying, right? It can always make things less bad. Um and so I'm still very energized by this struggle and by trying to figure out what it is I can do and what it is that other people can do and what it is that needs to be done and and how to do it so I'm not um I'm intellectually I can definitely become pessimistic if I allow myself to linger on it for too long in emotionally and by character I tend to be optimistic so um and it's Who was it who said that action is the antidote to despair or action is the antidote to pessimism? And I definitely, definitely feel that, even though my action is is a little bit eccentric in terms of doing adventurous journeys and then talking and writing about them as, as metaphors and as communication mediums and as mindsets. Is that eccentric
2: or is that what we've always done? I don't know if that's just reframing. Hmm humans have done throughout history so it was i went here fought this amazing battle we won isn't that brilliant and everybody clapped (laughs) and then it was well that's not that cool anymore so let's go and conquer mountains and white bearded men i know the irony will stand on top of them and wave flags and now it's that kind of sense of stewardship guardianship you know almost being a sentinel um that's the new version of that i don't think that's eccentric
1: great i i've never quite thought about it in that way that's that's really fascinating and i'm thinking um as you said that and there's also some pitfalls isn't there like sing, single white male or female saves the world is is a is a narrative that that has its <laughs> has its problematic dimensions that's for, that's for sure um i remember once reading a critique of of western filmmaking on the, on this issue and how how we're prone to a single white male or female saving the world in our film narratives and how very few films there are about working together as part of a group and and obviously none of us can save the world single-handedly can we but there aren't that many movies that depict a community coming together and growing its own food and um engaging in transition away from fossil fuels etc cetera, etc cetera. there should be more there should be more of those
2: yeah i can i uh, this is really shitty thing to say but i can't say what it is but um somebody i've worked with recently he was i was director on a project for nat geo and he was the series director sort of a fair bit older than me much more experienced and he's now working on a sensational project with this um she she's a tribal chieftain and she is you know combating government um you know uh, not quite with with rifles in her hands but she's not far off and she's doing an amazing job the story is about her yes it's a white wealthy man from Austria telling the story but only behind the camera you know it's her story and I think that's progressive and that's right but I also I'm opening myself up to flack via email here which I'm <laughs> so, sure. I am subjected to I'm very used to that these days but um I think it's also just about truth. Like we do live in the world where the white savior narrative still very much exists, and I don't know if you've seen Virunga, but Mm -hmm. that film is spectacular, and you know it tells the stories of story of Virunga National Park and the deep dark, um, you know, huge um, corporations trying to get in and drill for oil despite it being illegal,
1: Mm.
2: and you know, spoiler alert, but I mean, you know, it's documentaries. It's not It's not fiction. Um, the, there's a Belgian prince who is responsible, in one sense, for guardianship, looking after Virunga. And there's a hit on him. He gets shot seven, eight times, however many, survives. But he is the saviour of that story, in one sense. And mm-hmm. I think that's unpalatable for lots of people. But the reality is he sacrificed his... Belgian princehood and he could live this very luxurious brilliant life to go and live in Virunga National Park build an amazing ranger team and try and protect it fight for it literally um rangers are dying all the time he was shot that's just the truth is the reality and I'd like to live in a world you know we probably won't see it in my lifetime where that guy is not from Belgium and he's from the Congo instead but I'd much rather know the truth of what's going on, and we can talk about how to alter it, change it, be more progressive, than be lied to and just, frankly, tokenize people. I don't know if that's helpful. And I don't know if you agree or not.
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. And I, I can't imagine why I haven't seen that movie from what you said about it. I have seen one called The Territory. Um, and you're probably familiar with that, too. And what was fantastic about that was that the the Western filmmakers did go in and they set up a filmmaking school and then eventually the, the the film was made by the Indigenous people. And another thing that was incredible about that movie is that they then chose to interview the white settler farmers who were encroaching on their territory and give them um, their voice. And it comes, it comes back to your, your point about truth, which I absolutely agree. I think it's Absolutely vital in so many ways to tell the truth about the scale of the environmental challenge. Obviously, for a start, but also try to tell the truth to be felicitous about people's perspectives. So, in this in this film, um, the, the the farmers that were destroying the rainforest that the film was focused on, that bit, the bit of rainforest that the indigenous peoples were trying to protect their perspective was that they, they, they were Brazilian, they were extremely poor. The only chance they had of raising, of raising their families well was to go into the rainforest, cut down trees and grow food there. And from their perspective, the indigenous people were wasting the forest. They just hung out there. They didn't do anything with it. And so why should they deserve, you know, why did they deserve having so much of it when they were hardworking people that were only trying to feed their families? And it was a genuine perspective. Obviously, that was really how they experienced um, their relationship with the forest, with indigenous peoples and their options in Brazil at that time. So it was absolutely fascinating and just really key to tell those stories well without lapsing into stereotype or... Um, kind of caricatured positioning of different sides to the debate.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> There's so much I could talk to you about. I've just looked down and noticed that we've been talking for an hour. Oh, like, I thought we were 20 minutes in. But um, and maybe we'll come back to some of it. But I would really like for you to tell me about the bamboo bike and why you did it, um, where you went, what you did. Obviously, you've hinted at some of it, but what's the point? Why do it?
1: So the point was an Adventure Plus journey. Um, there were there were two kind of main motivation, motivica, modifications. Motifications? That's a good word. Motivations. Um, one was the plotking thing. If you can find a way of doing something that you're passionate about and where that intersects with something the world actually needs, then that's where you're happiest and you're most effective. And I found that so powerful. It helped me get out of the university system and helped me sort of decide to commit to this adventure plus idea. So that was one of them. And as we've already discussed, I love riding my bike in mountains. And I'm also passionate about trying to tackle environmental challenges in some small way that I can do. Um, So that was one thing. How could I ride my bike in big mountains again, get get out of my work situation and get back on the road, but do so in a way that would give something back. And the other was a diagram. And it was a a diagram that uh, Johan Rockström and his team at the Stockholm Resilience Centre published in 2009 in Nature magazine. And it was trying to look at all the different environmental issues that we face and to figure out which ones were most out in the red in relation to their impacts on human beings. And the one that was most in the red, more even than climate change, was biodiversity loss. And I was like, really? I know how dangerous climate change is. How can biodiversity loss be even more important? Can it be? And so the life cycle biodiversity bike ride was in a a sense an attempt to answer that question while having a fabulous adventure, while pursuing the adventure plus kind of concept. So I was going to do it by bike. I didn't really have a decent off-road bike at the time. thought it would be really cool to make my own bike because then I'll really know how to look after it on the road. And somewhere along the line, the idea of doing a bamboo bike came into my head and I just thought this was just such a fabulous idea to do a biodiversity bike ride on a low impact bike that used to be a plant I mean it just there was this lovely coherence between the medium and the message so I went to the Bicycle Bam the Bamboo Bicycle Club in London where they run courses about how to build a bike or a bike frame anyway the wheels are normal wheels but the frame is bamboo and did that course and we managed to source the bamboo from the Eden Project in Cornwall. A lot of the bamboo comes from China, but obviously I wanted something more local. So the bamboo in the bike comes from the Eden Project and the bike's called Woody, even though bamboo is a grass, but leaving that botanical detail aside, the bike's called Woody and we think he's the UK's first homegrown bicycle. Um, and everybody loves Woody. I mean, he's slightly eccentric looking and yeah, just ha- it, it just is a real character. So then Woody and I hopped on the cargo ship, uh, nipped across the Atlantic uh, to Cartagena, Colombia, and then we cycled from Colombia to Cape Horn, or anyway, Ushuaia, which is right down at the bottom, the town they call the end of the earth, more or less tracking the Andes, mostly on the road, but with some off road sections, um, and exploring biodiversity what it is and what's happening to it and why it matters and why it's absolutely vital um, for all life on earth that, that biodiversity flourishes. And then beyond extraordinary in in many, 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 many ways, how how much time have we got? <laughs> <laughs> well, a little while, it
2: depends how busy you are. but um <laughs> i I have to ask about the cargo ship. I obviously forgot, and now we're back there. But I've been fascinated by this idea of, well, hang on, if we really were to stop flying, could we get everywhere by boat? And I know it's not realistic for most people, so, how did you go about getting access? And if I can ask, how much did it cost? I think it's important to talk about. And how long did it take?
1: So it used to be possible to hit on a cargo ship. And unfortunately, those days are long gone. I mean, you need eye-wateringly complicated <clears throat> insurance because they've got no medics on board. So you need kind of helivac level insurance for starters. But there's a broker, or there's a few brokers out there that kind of make a relationship between you and the journey you want to do and your and the nearest cargo ship that's doing that journey that accepts passengers so it's actually relatively straightforward once you've got hold of the broker i use some people called cruisepeople.co.uk and they were, they, they were great um, there are increasingly numbers of cargo ships that do take a few passengers um, don't be put, don't be misled by the cruise people name it's got nothing to do with the cruise like you have a very comfortable ensuite room and you have three meals a day. If you're vegetarian, those meals can be a little samey. <laughs> and you have access to the, um, to the deck so long as you don't the bridge rather, so long as you don't talk to the captain during maneuvers. Um, and that's about it. There's there's no facilities. But fascinating, I mean, just fascinating. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people at sea, as we speak, living on these ships for months and months and months and months on end. And of course, it really, really brings home the thing about consumerism. All of these ships are full of containers, full of stuff. And that stuff is moving around the world um, being unloaded and offloaded onto other ships and then onto trucks and then going to stores and so on. But just mind-blowing to see acres and acres and acres and acres of containers constantly going off and on ships when you dock overnight in harbors. So just really, really interesting in so many ways. And and also interesting in the way it it reminds you how big the ocean is. I mean, we call it planet Earth, don't we? But actually, is it 70% of the Earth's surface is ocean? And when you're on there, even in a huge ship, it really changes your perspective of your own relative size and importance in the grander scheme of things. So yeah I I really really loved traveling by cargo ship and there's no wi-fi so it's the first time in my life i ever caught up with my emails (laughs) because I did them all and no more came in so that was that was a a magical thing in its own right. Um, It took me 11 days I think to get from I caught it in France on the way out and uh, got to Colombia. It was at that point 110 euros a day, so it's not cheap, but it's like it's comparable to an average hotel bill, I guess. And you get your three meals a day in your comfortable ensuite cabin, and you're allowed to roam around. So that that was brilliant. On the way back, I caught it from Santiago, in Chile, came all the way up the Pacific coast, then through the Panama Canal, which was mind-blowingly interesting. I did some reading about the Panama canal and how it changed the geopolitics of the, of the, of the world at that point. Just, just astonishing kind of engineering and political stories behind that canal. Anyway, we came through that and then crossed the Atlantic. And that journey took 30 days So, and most of my life savings. But I really, really wanted to do the trip without flying. And Mike Berners-Lee, the carbon footprinting guru and author of How Bad Is Bananas, amongst others, and um, he figured out for me that if I'd flown transatlantic return, it would have been about two tons of carbon dioxide and equivalent emissions. Traveling by um, cargo ship reduced it to about 50 kilograms. So it was a big saving on my own um, personal carbon footprint, which yeah, which was which was an added bonus, obviously,
2: and an amazing adventure that we exactly. Yeah, there's no way I'd have asked what your flight was like.
1: Well, exactly. Exactly. And if you had, it would have been a fairly boring answer, right? <laughs> but the cargo ship, fascinating on so many levels, just this existence of this whole world. Somebody once figured out that about 90% of everything any one of us owns has at some point been on a cargo ship. So just huge in terms of in terms of capitalism, if you like, in, in terms of the movement of stuff and things around the world, immense.
2: I actually, I recorded a podcast just before I went away to Iceland with a guy who specialises in freight, cargo freight um, ships and how that works and mixing that with his own adventures. So it'll be an interesting one to listen to. Yeah. Um, I look forward to that. Yeah, it's... It just makes so much sense. I know it's not realistic and that I have this habit of being overly romantic about the future of travel and my own adventures, but I recognize that I'm in a privileged position, but it just sounds amazing. The idea of, you know, removing the flying guilt, meeting all those people on that ship, living that life, looking out of the window, standing on the deck, standing on the bridge, like that's amazing. And it costs very, very, it's comparable to the cost of the flight. Is it not, I think?
1: Comparable, to yeah, for sure. On the way out, definitely. On the way back, it, it stacked up. It was about three grand in the end. Okay. Um, but because I was there for a month. So, um, but it, but it, it, yeah, as I say, it was my life savings or my life debt, in you know, whichever way you want to look at it. But definitely, definitely worth it. And interestingly, I mean, I'd been cycling for 13 months by that stage. And uh, in the end, I was away from home for a year and a half in total. And if I just jumped on a plane and come back, um leaving aside the carbon footprint which obviously i didn't want to given the focus of the journey but even leaving that aside it's a very abrupt, abrupt brutal transition whereas and when i've been i've been on the road as i say for 13 months pedaling mostly living in my tent towards the end of the journey especially outside all day in my tent at night in in, in motion constantly constantly in motion to suddenly stop is psychologically a, a very, very hard transition. So on the ship, I wasn't exercising very much, but at least I was still in motion, and at least I could still be outside for chunks of the day and feel that, yeah, that, that sort of movement thing is really important, isn't it? And I had a month to kind of try to process the journey and organise my photographs and um, just make that huge transition from living out of a tent on the road to being back in a house with walls that's static and it's the same house night after night after night it's very very odd that transition I found it quite hard on this occasion like to say
2: but it's also it's more armchair amateur philosophy but it's I mean I've said this too many times in this podcast but if I ever write a book and I hope I've got a few in me I think coming home would be a short one I'd love to write and basically how to do it you know lessons from people who've had to do it and it's something that doesn't get talked about enough, that decompression chamber that we all experience from these bigger journeys. Um, but I think travelling in that way home, that slow reintegration, that connection to the passage and the journey yeah,
1: yeah,
2: it would aid with that so much. I mean, it just, you know, silly example recently, but my wife's parents live about, well, I know exactly how far now, 15.5 kilometres from our house not via road, it's shorter and it takes 13 minutes to drive it. But I decided to run there um, to go for dinner just before Christmas. And I couldn't believe how more, how much more connected I felt to the place that I lived because rather than this, you know, road journey that we always take, I ran through fields and through forests and I actually calculated it on Strava. I touched tarmac for 450 metres <laughs> and it totally changed my perception of the place yeah. that I lived. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, fascinating. Yeah. And, and you were in motion in a different way from being in a car. You experience it more vi- visceral, the right word anyway, but you experience it, don't you, much more when you're running or cycling um, or even walking than, than being trapped inside that, that little metal box. Much yeah. as all of the little metal boxes, I have one that I'm very, very attached to myself. But um, one of the books that's had a big impact on me over the years is Bruce Chatwin's Songlines. And he argues in there, doesn't he, that um, we're fundamentally nomadic. We were nomadic as, as, a, as, a, as a species for a lot longer than we were settled. And I've always felt that as a kid on car journeys, I used to get really upset when we arrived. I just really liked the motion. And I remember I was, um, I was lucky enough to spend a couple of years in Colorado as a postgraduate student and took a train journey from Colorado to um, California for a conference which took a couple of days and was reading some lines on this train journey. And it just made so much sense, that feeling of, yes, this is right when you're in motion and you're on the move. And, and I don't quite know how to explain it, but there was a kind of an aha moment for me there with that book. Yes, being in motion is the natural state for a human being to be. Actually, stopping is is the unnatural thing.
2: Yeah, and I think that that plays so well into the the whole connection to nature and the natural world without yeah. needing to go to Antarctica. Yeah. Um, I mean, how much do you feel a sense of place where you live now and how much of that is down to your exploration of that environment versus just to throw another one in, the community that you find there or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, where I currently live is in, in Alderston, which is a small Cumbria town in the south of, of Cumbria. And it's a lovely little town and I live on a street in a terraced house. Um, and the front of the house has got ivy all over it, and in the ivy live various sparrows and starlings. And I've actually, um when I was on the ride, i used, I developed this practice of asking, whose community am I cycling through in the sense of other than humans, who else lives here? and really trying to pay attention. And that was fascinating because sometimes, for example, in Bolivia, Bolivia, much of Bolivia is very high, isn't it? So I was often camping in this almost deserty type places with a bit of scrub and apparently not much else. And then I would be sort of focused on this question, who else lives here? And you'd start to see beetles and ants and birds and um, birds hunting insects and start to realize that, yeah, no, there was a whole community of life there, that if you just stopped and paid attention to it, there it was. And so when I got back, um, I would allow myself to deliberately spend a good 10 minutes every day. 10 minutes is not much, obviously, but it's better than nothing. When you get back, you're busy, right? Suddenly there's 8 million emails in your inbox and people wanting interviews and books to write and things to do. So I would spend 10 minutes every day deliberately sitting under the ivy, listening to the starlings, hanging out with them. Um, and it was yeah, it was so so helpful for my sanity on return, and really makes your point that you don't need to be in these big wild places to connect to nature. And actually, if you can get close up to birds in particular, and I just think they're, they're almost like ambassadors for the other than human world or bridges from our community to the ecological community that we're part of, but we don't always realize everywhere has birds right and you can feed them and they come close to you and you can really observe them and hang out with them so the birds kind of kept me sane when I got back which might sound a bit strange but it's definitely the case and now I'm lucky enough to be moving towards somewhere where the ecological community is much more visible and more present but still it's still a question of making space for that in your everyday life isn't it just to spend time and stop and hang out and sit under a tree for a while And and most people can do that wherever they are, I think.
2: Yeah, I love it. Um, (laughs) So I'm very conscious of time. Could you um, tell me about, I haven't been asked to say this, just audience, um, but can you tell me about the new book and what Mm. it's all about and why you did it?
1: Ah, the first thing to say about the book is that give me an overloaded bike and the Andes and an unfit human being riding the bike any day in terms of challenge writing the book has been just a different league of challenges I've actually found it really 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 hard because it is trying to combine the big it was 8288 miles in six different countries it was the bamboo bike it was biodiversity and why it's as important as climate change and then it took this massive apparent tangent that actually took me into the heart of the whole issue which becomes about extractivism and capitalist economics and why we need to redefine our quality of life completely in various ways and reshape our economic system and blah. So you can see it becomes this massive, monstrous, complicated, interconnected, but also ultimately very, very hopeful story about the transitions that we can make still, I believe. So it took me nearly five years. (laughs) And it's called The Life Cycle, 8,000 miles across the Andes by bamboo bike or 8,000 miles in the Andes. I don't even know the title of the, of the thing. But anyway, the, the main title is, is The Life Cycle. I'm sure it's 8,000 miles in the Andes by Bamboo Bike, thinking about it. And it's got a green cover, and it's published by Icon Books on the 1st of June. And I'm really excited by it. Now it's finished. Um, like all authors, I went through a period of absolute self-hatred and loathing. When I first finished it, I was convinced it was a disaster, and that i just spent five years of my life which is kind of on a self-indulgent quest to overlong rubbishy nonsense. Um, But it's actually starting to get some really, really positive reviews, which is so reassuring and so gratifying. And I'm about to launch on a fairly mad kind of tour of book talks, which I'm hoping to do on the bamboo bike with the books in a trailer um, behind the bamboo bike. The small um, glitch here being that I've never been so unfit in my entire life. having just spent five years sat on my bum writing a book. so <laughs> not quite sure how well this is going to go with this plan. but anyway, Woody and I will be out on the road uh, giving book talks and um, hopefully selling some books soon. And, and the whole point of it is to get this message out there that biodiversity, other forms of life are not a, are not a luxury. They're vital. We cannot live without them. We have to protect them. We're destroying biodiversity at a catastrophic rate. We have to do something about that. And also, it's it's tragic, right? These other beings are every bit as entitled to be here as we are, and um, who, who are we to wipe them out? So, so the book is my kind of passionate call to, call to arms, I think, for all of us to do what we can to arrest ecological catastrophe and lead a, a, a differently understood quality life in the process
2: yeah I look forward to it (laughs) um oh yeah I maybe should ask you this off air but um I'm trying to get an adventure podcast book club off the ground where we all buy the same book read it and then chat about it and then invite the author in to have a chat so if you're up for it maybe we should do that this summer
1: I would love that really really Matt I can't think of anything more I mean as I say the whole point of this book is to is is to throw this out into the world and have conversations and discussions so yes please count me in
2: okay we'll do it cool i'll,
1: I'll even send you a book how about that
2: oh that was very <laughs> <shelf>. <laughs> i have a shelf actually of um <laughs> it's written by people i know where i've spoken to which is it it gives me quite a lot of pride actually that's strange um it doesn't sound egotistical it's more
1: no it sounds lovely actually because when you look at the book it must help you recall the conversation and and yeah yeah, remember the insights that you got from that person or 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 not as the case may be
2: yeah and it's always fascinating because i rarely read a book before i do an interview and i know that's counterintuitive most people just say what you don't read it before you interview them but i think well then i know everything there's nothing you know i didn't know you had been on the cargo ship and i like that i didn't um Anyway, that's a whole different philosophical angle um cool well because of time I'm going to call it a day I am um, always ask people the same two questions at the end of every podcast um, the first is what scares you
1: dentists <laughs> seriously I think it's chapter 10 you'll see <laughs>
2: I was going to say that I need a better answer than that. But if it's in the book and it's chapter 10, then that's enough of an insight. It
1: might not be chapter 10, but it's there. Having a tooth extracted in Peru. Oof. I've always been scared of dentists, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, okay, what else? What really scares me is, is suddenly waking up, discovering I'm 97 and thinking, oh my God, what did I do with my life? And why didn't I go up more mountains and, Why didn't I work harder just to try to change things? Um, Why, yeah, why did I waste so much time on emails? (laughs) Just, you know, it's a familiar thought, isn't it? Like what scares me is not living life to the full um, absolutely every minute of every day because life is so incredible and so amazing and so rich and so precious and so valuable. And so living it to the full for me is celebrating it, but also fighting on its behalf. So my biggest fear, even more than dentists, is getting to the end of my life and thinking, "Shit, I didn't do that."
2: I'm. I I, obviously we don't know each other very well, and who am I to comment? But I think if you make it to ninety-seven, which would be wonderful, I'm fairly sure sure you'll look back fondly. (laughs) Maybe not on the five years of book writing, but
1: (laughs) if I Um, make it to ninety-seven, it will be fairly miraculous. Actually,
2: (laughs) (laughs) it will be great. Um. What brings you hope?
1: What brings me hope? The fact that we have the solutions, actually. And again, I mean, traveling in South America is fantastic for that because the indigenous communities, and again, this sounds like a cliche, but there are so many cultures who know how to coexist with nature and how to celebrate that and have been doing it sustainably for thousands of years, right? There are so many cultures Whose values aren't shaped by consumerist capitalist society to the extent that ours often are, and there are so many cultures where resistance has become normal. So a, col- a previously colonized country has a fantastic kind of mindset and values and philosophy around resistance and um, combining resistance and celebration. So what gives me hope is is that we we know how to live better on the planet, and there. are to come back to the Western cultures, there are some brilliant thinkers out there creating things like donut economics and post-growth economics. Tim Jackson's prosperity without growth, and so on and so and so forth. We've got the solutions; we just need to implement them, and and that gives me hope. The other thing, and again, and gosh, this is a bit of a cliche-ridden podcast. Apologies for that, Matt. But but uh, the young generation of activists that are coming through now, the Fridays for the Future and some of Extinction Rebellion's work. And we're just seeing a huge upsurge of people in general, and especially young people, saying, enough. You know, this is crazy. We have to change course. And we demand that we do change course. And that definitely gives me hope, for sure. And being able to join in on that in some small way um, comes back to the optimism of of action. Um, Huge source of hope.
2: Brilliant. We'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you very, very much. It's been thoroughly enjoyable and challenging and thought-provoking conversation and um, I look forward to more.
2: Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the adventure podcast at If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.